Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Blair Donovan, and we're going to be discussing strength and conditioning approaches for basketball athletes specifically. Blair has a lot of experience in this realm, as he's the former strength and conditioning coach for the Washington Wizards, and he is a partner in the group Healthy Baller, which really focuses on helping high-level athletes with all of their needs, from physical therapy to strength and conditioning and beyond. So I highly recommend you check them out and check out Blair. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Blair, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Appreciate it. Really excited to be here. So for people who aren't familiar with you, maybe they haven't heard your backstory, or maybe they haven't heard of that company called Healthy Baller before, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the stuff that you guys are doing over there in Maryland and Virginia? Yeah, I appreciate it. Yes. So um, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I've been working in the D.C. metro area for more than 20 years. Um, I'm, a, I'm a basketball passionate guy. Um and have had a lot of opportunity over the years to to work with a number of different schools and players, and and uh, you know develop great relationships and contacts with uh, teams and coaches all over the area. And so that's really helped my my business blossom over the years. Um, and not until it was about 2011, 2012, I created Healthy Baller, um, which is now a, a full brick and mortar facility in three different locations around the D.C. area. And uh, we're, we're an athlete performance company, you know, focused on servicing a wide variety of sports and athletes, all ages and levels, um, but really primarily, you know, middle school, high school. We certainly serve the, the college community pretty well and certainly have a, a small handful of uh, pro athletes that come in through the course of the year. Um, but, yeah, we've been in the area for, for quite a while now and, and making a good name and putting out a good product and really care about the, the athletes we work with. And, and it's been, been a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I think you guys are becoming a household name in a lot of ways there. And I think as the name implies, and I believe your uh, colleague Matt Boyd mentioned this earlier too, the company was started with a basketball focus or basketball in mind. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, even more so a little deeper. It actually started more with a nutrition mindset. Um, uh, a former business partner of mine uh, was really blowing up on social media. He he was he exploded on Twitter to like seventy thousand when f- Twitter first came out. He was he was really strong on social media, and I was you know I was a little intimidated by the whole scene and stuff, and so I didn't really you know I didn't really pursue that as much. But after a while, I was like, well, let me try. And so you know he challenged me to say, hey, let's come up with something specific for you, and I I made up a list of twenty names of something where I wanted to really attack a specific niche and the goal was going to be focused more around nutrition and and I came up with healthy baller and healthy baller was really really who I am who I want to be and it still is that that's the case like I'm 43 I still hoop I want to be a healthy baller and so it was born out of like a nutrition goal and what I ended up doing was making some videos online um Several of them went went pretty pretty strong with a lot of views. Um, you know, I went to like Wendy's or Chipotle and basically told, you know, taught kids what they should get because they're going to go to some of these places, whether they're the healthiest or not, which they're not, uh, they're going to go to these places. So trying to help kids make better decisions. So that's where Healthy Baller really truly started was nutritional focus. And it, and it was basketball background, of course. Um, but then it, it evolved into understanding like, hey, look, if you're a baller, 
You know, that means to me, that means you're an athlete. You could be a soccer player, or a baseball player. If you're a baller, you're, you're, you're serious about your sport. And, and so that just, that name just kind of carried through and, and uh, felt strong about it. And I, and I was a little nervous about, it, to be honest with you, because, you know, inevitably you're going to have kids that sometimes, you know, get banged up, you know, have an injury here or there, because that's life. We can't prevent everything. If we could, I'd be a trillionaire. I'd be sitting on the beach right now. And, and so I was like a little intimidating thinking I have a business called Healthy Baller. And what if I have kids that get hurt? But, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen sometimes. I mean, the, the professional teams have athletes have injuries all the time and they've got the best docs and med, med, medicine, sports medicine folks and therapists around, you know what I mean? So we're, no one's exempt from, uh, you know, preventing everything. Right. So, uh, but healthy ball, that's how it really originally, originally started out. You know, That's a really cool origin story. And I think as you're kind of alluding to, you have quite a basketball background yourself. And I'm really excited to kind of dive into that today and talk very specifically about, you know, strength and conditioning for the basketball athlete. So, you know, say you're working at one of your facilities and a basketball player comes in and they want to work with you uh, first, you know, how do you get that process started? And what are you kind of thinking mentally as far as like goals and overall like outlook for a basketball player who comes into your facility and says, hey, I want to be a better player? Yeah, well, I mean, we're always going to start with a pretty comprehensive assessment process. I want to see, uh, I want to, you know, quote unquote, look under the hood. You know, I want to see what's working well, what's not. Okay, um, and and basically create my own my own uh, personal assessment of what I think they need. And then, most importantly, too, because I'm in the service business, you know, this is a private business that people pay pay money for. You know, I've got to mesh that with their their particular goals. Okay, so um, you know, first and foremost, like I said, gathering a ton of metrics and and, uh, you know, go through our screening process and see what we're dealing with. Uh, understand a lot of the outside variables. So making notes on that, what type of load is going on outside of the, you know, outside of the, the weekly schedule? You know, how many games, practices, workouts, extra workouts are they doing, that sort of thing. And putting all this into one big, you know, one big file so that we know what we're dealing with and how to how to move forward with the next best steps. Okay, so... You know, so that's the first that's the first part. And then most importantly, too, uh, so many kids that I see, even at the younger ages, are, are dealing with more tendonitis, uh, patellar tendonitis, is very common, obviously, but but more so now than years ago, Achilles tendonitis, which is which is scary because Achilles issues tend to be an old man issue, like Achilles tears, at least. And, you know, we see kids sometimes that have Achilles pains and this and that. And uh, and so really having a, a, a strong approach within my programming uh, with, with tendon protocols. OK, so whether they're healthy or, or not, tendon protocols are always going to be within our our framework uh, through the course of the year. Um, you know, so that, that those are those are my two big starting points, to be honest, just get a pretty full on assessment, see where they want to go, see what I think they need. Uh, make sure the tendon protocol is appropriate depending on, you know, what their workload is outside of the gym. I think it's great you bring up the tendon protocol there, Blair, because uh, about maybe six, seven months ago, we were working with a guy by the name of Derek Millander with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he was saying similar things uh, on the NBA level is a lot of guys come in with tendon-type issues from basketball, Achilles, patellar tendon, whatever, and a lot of iso-loading-type protocols really do a lot of great work to help melt that pain away. But, you know, you don't necessarily need to do a, you know, physical therapy session in order to iso-load 
quad and patellar tendons or Achilles tendons uh, and get stronger. Like a strength coach can isoload someone safely and effectively. Um, so I love that you bring that up. On your assessment uh, piece, is there ever any like common deficits, I would say, that a lot of basketball players present with or any sort of pattern that you see there? Yeah, and before I jump into that, it's funny you bring up Derek. I was with Derek two days ago. We uh, we got a workout together because they were they were in really? town to play the Wizards, and so yeah, so he 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 drops in every time they're in town, or most times they're in town, and uh, comes by the gym and works out. So it's always great catching up with him. He's a good friend. That's so uh, very sharp guy. Yeah, and so um yeah, so common deficits I'm seeing you know are, are going to be traditional for basketball players. You know, uh, ankle mobility deficits. Uh, you know, dorsiflexion strength. Uh, you know, very much issues there. Uh, hip internal rotations are going to be uh, always, you know, tend to be limited for 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 basketball players. Um, you know, I've seen a handful of players with shoulder flexion issues. Looking for those commonalities, and, and and we see them a lot. You know, even through the younger athletes, which is crazy. And I think a lot of it's due to the to the overuse of of sport and and just you know a lot of gameplay. Um, a lot of training on the court, but not so much training the body and, and, and training to be more resilient. Um, and then combine that with sitting a lot, you know, our lifestyle outside of sport now is sitting down a lot uh, on the computer, on the phone, you know, hunched over so that those mechanics long-term, the, the law of repetitive uh, motion uh, or law, I can't remember what it is, the law of repetitive or accumulative reps i can't remember the term so i apologize there but basically a lot a lot of load over long term you know you're going to get some some bad postures and positions and that can really affect your you know affect your mobility and stuff so seeing a lot of that for the most part but ankles ankles and hips for sure are going to be the most common common that i see yeah definitely and uh i think almost every season um, I see, you know, numerous basketball players come in with ankle sprains. So doing things like you talked about to improve dorsiflexion strength and mobility, uh, it's only going to help reduce that by putting that ankle in a closed pack position. Um, I think you were referring to um, Wolf's Law and Davis's Law there um, before with the fact that bones are going to adapt in the loads that are placed on them and soft tissue will heal and adapt in the manner in which it's mechanically stressed. Um, and those are very important points to bring up because as you mentioned, a lot of the athletes anymore, their lifestyle doesn't necessarily match athletic for most of the day, right? Kids sit down in school for seven to eight hours and they're not moving around a lot. So from a programming consideration, how do you go about factoring in the load of doing a lot of basketball with the lifestyle of seven to eight hours of, you know, decent stress level, not a whole lot of movement and probably not a whole lot of sleep? How do you factor all that in when you start creating your programs for basketball players, Blair? Again, coming back to the assessment process and really seeing what, what areas we really need to make, you know, some, some moves on. Um, you know, so so starting with that that point there, um, you know, kids are kids are going to be kids. You know, they're going to stay up late sometimes. They're going to eat junk food uh, here and there. They're 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 going to be kids as it is. Um, you know, when we see an athlete, we're going to ask you know several questions. You know, it seems like the it seems like the barrage of questions every time we come in. How are you doing? What's going on? What'd you do? What'd you do yesterday? What do you have coming up? And I find that to be very important. Although you know, it can be annoying for some. You know, it's not really, but it's important for us because we want to make the best decisions possible for that day. 
And, and that's one way that we manage it from a subjective aspect is ask questions and get a feel. And then as a coach, you know, developing your coaching eye over many years, you're going to get a sense and feel of like, how are they operating through their warm-up? Oh, they look pretty sluggish today. Uh, he said he felt pretty sluggish. Yeah, I can see that. Um, or, you know, they say they're pretty good, but they look sluggish, you know. And so you really got to use your coaching eye to see how they progress through the warm-up, through the workout, and make a decision from there. Um, you know, so it's not always so clear and cut, cut dry for whatever program you want to run. You have to make you have to make good decisions at that moment in time. Um, another way that I'm looking deeper uh, to get more information is we're using our force plate technology through Hawk and Dynamics. And so that's really going to give me an objective measurement of like, what is their fatigue level readiness, um, you know, power output capability at that point in time of the day. And so, you know, once I've collected a, a number of data points, I'm going to be able to, to look at them on average and see who they are as an athlete. And, and I can really truly tell like, okay, we need to back off today a little bit. Um, you know, if we had a big power focus day, we're probably not going to get a great adaptation you know, if we try to really press the buttons, even though you're, you're super fatigued, you know, so that might be a day that we, we, we shift a little bit, you know, we go down a different road uh, or simply cut the volume, cut the volume down a little bit. So we're going to look at a number of ways. Like I said, ask them questions, take a look at their movement, you know, use your coaching eye and then, and then use an actual assessment through, through use of technology. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I love the combination of the subjective report with the objective data um, because sometimes they match and line up perfectly and sometimes they don't. And it's helpful to know that stuff. Now, you talked a lot about how you modify the sessions each time, which I also love. So that way, each session with the athletes is individualized and tailored to them specifically. What does your typical session look like? Like how long are you working with an athlete? What kind of things are you factoring in when you're working with some of these basketball players? Well, you know, so because we're, we're working within a specific business model, you know, we, we stay with a one hour session. So I have to fit everything in within that one hour session. Is that the perfect way to train? Of course not. You know, some sessions can be 35, 40 minutes. Some sessions really need to be about an hour 15. Um, but because it's the model of my business, I need to fit what I need to fit within an hour session. And so very specifically, you know, we're going to go through a pretty comprehensive warm up. Uh, based off the evaluation, I like to have kids or athletes attack, you know, the, the areas where we really need to, to prime and, and, and get ready to, and more mobile, uh, work on some stabilization work. Um, we'll start with some light movement prep. Um, I always love to have a skip series just to get the brain coordinated. And I like to mix up our skip series, uh, you know, change it up occasionally. So I, I keep them sort of on their toes uh, with different patterns and techniques. Um, to feel kind of funky and, and, and odd, but also challenge our coordination. Um, and from there, that'll float us into our power work, which will be, you know, plyometric oriented. Um, and again, depending on the athlete and the time of the year and the focus for the athlete, you know, we'll do, you know, any variety of, of plyometric, uh, you know, approaches. But generally, because again, we have an hour, I, I need to hit a lot within a little bit of time. So I'm, I'm going to do the traditional, you know, run, jump, uh, run, jump and throw um, rotation of plyometrics just to get a little bit of everything, um, teach the athletes to, to get a variety of power expression exercises, you know, so for example, there might be, you know, some quick sprint work for a couple of reps, go into some form of uh, jump, maybe it's a box jump or a loaded box jump, uh, and then some type of med ball throw and then have sort of a rotation there. And that allows us to have a nice primed effect coming into our lift. And then the lift will be, 
based off again that athlete's assessment, they have a trainable menu. Um, and again, too, we uh, we have a lot in a lot of cases, uh, we operate out of like a semi-private situation, you know. So they're semi-private for us in our business. It could be anywhere from two to four athletes, and it's still very much it's still very much individualized because say that you and I are working together as an athlete, and 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 say maybe Matt was coaching us. You and I have our own trainable menus. We have our own assessment from the initial, you know, eval day. And uh, you may have an injury history and I may have something totally different. So we may have some different exercise collections, you know. So within the semi-private focus, we're able to still, you know, focus in on the right exercise selections for that individual. As opposed to saying, hey, just put everything up on the whiteboard and let's go to work and do what you can. Um, you know, so so from the strength component, you know, we're still able to very, be, uh, be very individualized for each athlete and, and focus on their their specific needs, whether that's in a small group or not, which is good. So, and then lastly, we'll, again, depending on the context of the, the session and the, and the time of the year, uh, we may finish off with some type of, uh, you know, ESD, some conditioning work, you know, for the athlete. But a lot of times uh, for me, I don't typically do that because kids are spending so much time on the court. Uh, I don't find that they need, you know, too much extra conditioning, uh, except in the event where you have a kid that doesn't play as much, um, you know, and, and in that case, they actually need to get extra conditioning because they're falling behind every time they don't get gameplay versus their, their, you know, their teammates that are playing several minutes per, per game, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I like how you brought up the connection of the assessment back into the programming and how the programming is individualized, even though you may or may not be one-on-one. Um, I think the semi-private training model is a phenomenal model. And I think that's a much better ratio than most people would get in a lot of other places. Right. Um, so I, I know this is not always the case, but my personal experience going to a small D3 school, they had one strength coach who was trying to work with 40 athletes at the same time. So that was not individualized and not personalized whatsoever. Whereas working with two or three athletes, it's pretty easy to do that. Now, outside of individualizing based on the assessment and the subjective report, are there any specific considerations that you put into uh, into working with a basketball player based on position or play style or anything like that? Like, how do you connect what they're doing on the court to what they do in the weight room? You know, really, uh, you know, really more in the NBA that I, that I had more conversations in that manner and when I say that I mean uh, I was I was really tightly connected with the the player development coach um, with the Wizards and, and still connected with the new guy the, the guy that's there now he's not a new guy but he was there now and uh, we would have conversations about what they thought the player needed and I would give my feedback on what I think they need as well and so conversations will go back and forth in terms of um, you know, how do we, you know, how do we target these areas that we need to get stronger for this athlete, bad athlete, that sort of thing. In terms of positions, I'm not really training athletes differently position to position. Basketball nowadays versus say 10, 20 years ago, it's becoming pretty position lift. Um, and, and, and I, I can't even say that if this was 20 years ago that I would train differently. Basketball players have to be athletic. They have to be able to run, jump, explode, decelerate. They've got to do a lot of similar things. Uh, everything is more difficult for the taller athlete, just more more work and momentum to control. And so, you know, they certainly have more challenges in that respect, but it's no excuse for them not to get stronger. I've had a lot of a lot of really tall, lengthy athletes that I've been able to get really, really strong over the years. Um, so I don't necessarily train them differently. But, um, 
you know, there are, there are occasions where I'll talk with parents and some, some, some coaches of the younger athletes and say, Hey, what do you think this kid really needs? And then I'll find ways to incorporate patterns, positions, uh, different exercises to, to, to challenge them and, and work on a specific focal point that a coach may want. A lot of times it comes back to like, um, you know, they need to move faster laterally. They need to defend, you know, they need to be, have quicker feet on defense, that sort of thing. I rarely have anybody say, um, my kid is super fast on, you know, laterally. He doesn't need any work on that. Every, everybody uses that as sort of like the default of like, that's what they need. You know, it's not really much else. Um, you know, so that seems to be a common common theme there, but we'll, we'll attack it and make sure that, that a kid feels like, okay, we are attacking the things you really, really need. And that's, that's where that personalized approach comes into play and, and makes a client feel good about what they're getting when they walk in the healthy baller. Yeah, I love that. And I completely agree too on the positionless uh, shift in basketball. Now I'll admit I have not watched as much basketball as you have, I believe. Um, but from what I've seen, it seems like you're seeing even smaller guys are dunking a basketball now, right? Like, there was um when I was growing up, I think Nate Robinson won a dunk competition, and I think he was like five foot seven, five foot nine. And you've got other individuals who are you know almost seven foot tall that are pulling up and shooting three pointers, and a lot of that kind of mid range shot seems to be shifting away. Um, you've got everyone who can shoot a three pointer and almost everyone who can dunk now. Uh, so it's kind of difficult to say that one position needs something significantly different than another when they're all doing the same general movements. And from my experience too, I almost feel like that general movement-based approach tends to work better than a highly specialized, highly specific approach. Not to say that there's you know not value in working specific things, but you don't want to be so lost in them that you lose your ability to do basic movements like squat hinge, lateral lunge, and maintain good strength, good range of motion, and good form through them. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there, there may be some small, you know, some small intricacies uh, within a program from, from person to person. And you could look at it and say, well, there's position to position, but it's to, to me, there, there's nothing that sticks out that, that I'm looking at that seven footer that I'll have uh, outside of leverages and positions. And again, this comes back to trainable menu. Like um, I'm probably, you know, I, I don't have many seven footers that are pulling, pulling the bar flat off the ground, you know, for a trap bar deadlift. I don't have that many. I have had some, but I don't have that many, you know, there's going to be maybe, maybe one or two small intricacies per, you know, you know, per person, but, but pretty minimal in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Now, how about when it comes to training a male basketball player versus a female basketball player? Is there any difference that you see on a playing style or anything different that you would consider from a training standpoint for a male versus female basketball player? This conversation might have been different, you know, several years back to uh, as well. But I'd have to argue that, that nowadays, I, you know, there really should not be any difference at, at all. If anything, they need to be trained equally the same. Um, girls are dunking now. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty wild. It's crazy. You know, you're seeing that more and more. You're seeing it in games as well. Seeing high school kid girls dunk. Um, and so again, they're they're going through the same patterns, mechanics, uh, decelerations, loading patterns, all that stuff. They're going through everything the same, and they they have to get just as strong and and uh, or trying to make make equally as, as strong improvements in their body and composition um, 
and to be able to withstand the forces of, of, of basketball. Certainly the, certainly the girls' game is not quite as vertical as the guys' game, but but girls are getting up, and it's a big deal. And it's uh, it's sort of like, you know, um, you know, leader of the pack a little bit, you know, like when you start seeing uh, Candace Parker dunking, you know, dunking the basketball, you know, nowadays, nowadays it's, it's, it's like I said, it's pretty common to do it. So girls are starting to believe that they can do it and they're getting up and touching the rim and, and um, you know, and so I think athleticism on the female side is just going to continue to improve as, as like the belief is there that they can do a lot of similar things in the guy as the guys. And it's absolutely true that they can. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that we need to be training them different. I think we do, we need to be training them um, just the same, but also aggressively and, probably with more of a mindset of like, you know, very, being, being very protective because obviously they have a higher incidence of ACL injuries. Um, and, and, you know, that's probably not going to change just because they're, you know, their body types and, and the, and the hip dispositions, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, getting strong is going to be the best way to be more durable, resistant to, to sport, you know, so I'd want to attack it pretty similar. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree there. And you're absolutely right about the, you know, I think a big push now for female athletes to be more involved in their sport and continue to break barriers. Um, because 20 to 30 years ago, the conversation around opportunity for female athletes in sports is very different than what it is today. So it is very awesome to see them kind of breaking barriers and pushing forward. And I do think the sky's the limit for a lot of things moving forward. As you mentioned, you know, we're, we're seeing female basketball players dunking a basketball now where 20 to 30 years ago, that probably wasn't even in the conversation really. Um, and I like how you mentioned too, that it's important to train them the same because ultimately the demands of the sport are going to be the same. You still have to pull up and hit a three. You still have to jump up and grab a rebound. You still need the ability to box out and body up against someone. So naturally, even though there is a gender difference and there are some, you know, small minute differences that come with that from an anatomical standpoint, something like maybe a Q angle or predisposition to knee valgus, ultimately the sport itself is the same regardless of your gender. Um, so I like the way you kind of approach that. And I like the points that you brought up there, Blair. How about on your assessment standpoint on that male versus female side, is there anything different that you see in the female basketball players compared to the males on assessment? Is there one that's saying, Hey, you know, my knees hurt more often to you, or is there one that's kind of presenting more with like a patellar tendon or Achilles tendon type thing? And you look for your tendon loading protocols more, or how do you, um, what, what differences do you see there on your assessments? Over this past year and a half, I haven't had, as many female um, athletes as, I, as I've had male, um, this would be a good question for, for Coach West, my right-hand guy. He's had a lot more females this past year. But, you know, looking back, I mean, um, assessment-wise, I mean, there's nothing really that sticks out that's like, oh, that's a female issue in terms of being common uh, as opposed to being a, a male issue. Um you know, basketball players are basketball players. We, we, we see, we see commonalities. We're going to see the tight ankles. We're going to see tight hips. I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing less hip internal rotation deficits with females. Of course, um, that's definitely one common one that I know sticks out. Um, um, I am seeing hip weakness for sure. Uh, and females and just sort of thinking as we're talking, um, uh, low back weakness for sure, you know, just really foundational, foundational weakness, I guess I can say, 
is probably more common with my female athletes that I'm thinking about that I've seen over the years. Um, and probably just more due to just not lack of exposure to, to good comprehensive training. Um, you know, you know, the boys that I'll see that pull up a lot of times, you know, that are just in a, in a highly overused situation of, you know, playing for several teams and trying to get every single workout in the can, you know, those are the ones that are, that are tender to the touch with, you know, with their Achilles area and, and, uh, you know, struggle with, to, to get into any kind of squat pattern because of just, just achiness, um, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, those are always the commonalities that I'll see from my, from my basketball players, even, even with younger ones. But yeah, I guess on the, I guess on the female side, it's really more probably strength deficits, but we're still seeing, we're still seeing some similarities, you know, ankle, ankle issues and just overall strength deficits, I believe. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, I completely agree with you there, too, on the hip uh, frontal and transverse plane deficits and core deficits, uh, especially when I work with a lot of the female athletes here, I see a lot of excess mobility and a lot of laxity. And I feel like stretching is something that is commonly pushed for them, um, even though they tend to have pretty good mobility. Uh, they miss a lot of strength and stability in certain positions, though. Um, and that's where it really goes to individuals such as yourself to really develop that, uh, you know, from the get go. And everything I've heard about your program there, you guys do an incredible job with that. Um, and I love that you pick up on the deficits, too, right away, as opposed to just kind of going in blind and, you know, trying to make a program without actually assessing an athlete, which I think a lot of people do. And I, I think, you know, that's all too common in today's day and age when we can do better. And I love that you guys are actively doing better. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's it's easy path if you if you just say, hey, we're just going to hit all these different things. It's an easy path. It's easy to not have to write stuff down. Um, if you, in my opinion, if you're going to do things the right way, you got to do things the, the way they're supposed to be done, whether that means it's hard or it's easy. And, and for me, it's just so important that I, I know what direction we're going. Uh, it's important that I stay accountable myself to, to what product I'm delivering. And when I say that, I mean, I've got to, I've got to get results. I've got to, I got to showcase to the parents and the kids that I'm getting results. Otherwise, I, I'm not going to build a business. I can't, I can't create a business, right? And if I don't get results, then they're not going to, you know, they're not going to share that with, with their friends or family. They're not going to showcase that on the court and field. Um, you know, so having, you know, having the, having the, the right approach, whether it's hard or easy, I think is, is, is the important part. But it's, you know, I've been around a lot of trainers over the years, and, and, and many, many take the easy road out because it is very easy just to walk in and, personal train somebody and give someone sweat not that difficult um it's it's very easy to just have no thought process going in and and take a paycheck for the day you know what i mean so but that's not that's not long term the way for us to build our business and build build athletes in my opinion i completely agree now you mentioned that you like to show progress and show improvement is there any kind of testing battery that you like to use do you redo tests that you did on your initial assessment day or do you have like a you know say a flying 10 or a rep max squat what are your kind of outcome like outcome measures for your basketball athletes player Dude, we'll do a handful um and i always believe that you know testing is training training is testing so everything we do is, is an assessment of some sort, you know? So uh, just because your squat looked a certain way one day 
doesn't mean it's going to look that way the next day because so many factors could affect that pattern for the day. You know, it could be uh, you came off a three-hour practice and you're just totally dead and your knees are achy or your left knee is achy and all of a sudden you're compensating and, and getting a hip shift, you know. So, so nonetheless, um, you know, a testing battery, you know, with, with just part of our program anyways, we're going to sprint every single week uh, for most athletes, okay. So I love a 10-yard acceleration, just a flat acceleration. And we have all of our numbers for, for different age groups and categories and sort of goal numbers. Uh, flying 10 is part of that as well. So we're looking at a little bit of the, the max velocity type of range uh, of running times. Um, um, so one of those two variables will hit. We might even hit a reactive lateral um, uh, 505, you know, agility occasionally there. So those are, those are a few in terms of the movement standpoint. Certainly, we're checking vertical jump. Um, I'll come back to that in a second because that's one of my most fun ones to talk about. But um, in terms of lifting, you know, our main our main exercises, which have to fit within the athlete's trainable menu. So, again, like I said, if you're a client, you may have a very different trainable menu. So if you're doing a split squat as one of your main lifts, that's one that we're tracking. We have to measure. We have to have a progression. We have to showcase that we're getting better. You have to feel that you're getting better. For me, it might be trap bar, okay, or I might be doing both of those exercises, but we need to track and measure. So it's part of our program. We have to know that we're getting better. We're producing more force. We're getting strong, getting better. And the kids will feel that. They know that. They know that we're engaged because we have records in our computer. We're looking at, oh, you did this last time. Okay, let's go up. Let's go up a few pounds. And that's an important approach, especially because, again, if a kid gets hurt in our gym, um, it's, it's a bigger issue than if it's, uh, say at a college or whatever, because if I hurt an athlete, okay, then I'm getting sued. Okay. I can get sued. And then that can be my business. That's my life online. Right. So we need to be able to have records of what's happening and make good decisions. Okay. So if you're trap bar in 200 for eight, and that's your max effort for eight reps. And I decide one day, because I'm not paying attention, let's just go up to 250, whether you can handle it or not that might not be the smartest decision. Will that kid get hurt? Probably not, but are you, are you um, creating a higher risk of possibility? Yeah, yeah, maybe if they're, not, if they're not really ready for that possibly. So it's important that we know where we're going. So tracking everything on that side, knowing your lift within your trainable menu, critical. Um, coming back to the vertical jump. So we're testing all the time. When I say that, um, like I want kids to jump all the time. Okay. We don't know when they're, we don't really know when they're going to peak. Um, I've always been opposed to um, the traditional model of like years and years ago when I first started this business, it was very traditional to say offer, we got an eight week program and you're going to gain two plus inches on your vertical. You're going to gain 0.2 hundredths of a second on your 40. And this is that strength in your eight week, right? And we're going to do a pre and post test. And I never, never liked that model, even from back then, because what naturally happens is you might have a great eight-week training program and process. And then on that testing day, the kid shows up and maybe they didn't, they didn't sleep well. They got a fight with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, they didn't eat breakfast. And then they test. And after eight weeks, they've trained so well and so hard you gained a half an inch on your vertical and um, you, you gained, you know, 0 0.01 on your 40 or whatever. I'm just talking out loud, of course. And parent says, I just spent all that money 
for eight weeks. We came in two or three times a week. I spent all that money for that, you know? And so that that's almost like setting up for failure. And so I bring that up because we test all the time. We're testing all the time. We sprint every single week. We use the testing measure as a competitive, as a competitive, uh, competitive sort of, uh, you know, technique. All right. So we have hanging tennis balls in our gym <laughs> and we have five different levels and they're all measured out and every kid wants to touch a tennis ball. They can't wait to jump. Like they, they come in and not even warm up. They want to touch tennis balls. And so what inev inevitably happens is, you know, they're touching a tennis ball and they realize they can touch it. And over time they're like, Ooh, they got to the next one. And each one is about anywhere from four to six inches above the other. And it's an automatic testimonial. If you came in and you're touching tennis ball number two, and now you're touching tennis ball number three, which is four or five inches higher, you you got better. I don't need to explain to you that you're jumping higher, you know, and the kid knows it. And so that that's a lot of the ways how we're testing, um, again, through training, through the training process, but not through like a specific testing day per se. Yeah, I love that approach. And I haven't heard that with the tennis balls before, but I like that. That makes a lot of sense of having them set at different levels. Um, and I, I like that that's a yes or no. You either hit it or you don't. Um, I've heard of some people talk about like the vertex pads before, and I love them. They're a great tool. But I've heard of some people saying that there's different ways to quote unquote cheat the vertex, or there's different ways to quote unquote cheat like a tin deck or some kind of means of measuring barbell speed and barbell velocity. Whereas like this is a simple yes or no, either hit it or you don't. And from a cost efficiency standpoint, tennis balls and string, anyone can do that. Um, so that's a great tool to have in the arsenal. And I like that a lot there, Blair. As we start to wrap up our talk about basketball training and different you know, considerations when working with basketball athletes, is there anything that we missed or anything else that you want to touch on here, Blair? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I'm sure we can, I'm sure we could go on for a lot longer. So I appreciate <laughs> the time today. Um, but what I would say is, you know, look, I mean, what I really think is nowadays, uh, with the NIL stuff, the name, image, and likeness, uh, situation, it's putting even more pressure on kids to be ready, prepared, um, to be, uh, competitive for scholarships. Why? Because, Nowadays, you're not just you're not just competing to get a scholarship for for school, but you're also competing now for a paycheck. And so it just prompts it's 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 going to prompt people um, to have to be even more prepared uh, for high school. You know, if you're not if you're not really high level right coming right into high school, you know, you may not be on the radar for uh, a big NIL deal, you know, or or a big college scholarship, right? So so then that means you got to track backwards. And you've got, where, what are you doing in middle school? Okay. And you might even need to track a little bit more backwards and what's going on in elementary school. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that they need to be necessarily strength training in fifth, sixth grade. I do, I do believe there's a tremendous benefit to athletes doing some of the stuff that we do at Healthy Baller for, for fifth, sixth graders, because we do work with a lot of these levels of athletes, but it's all age appropriate because you know, at that at that age level, the brains are sponges and, and they're just so able to soak in so much stimulus and information and, and they're learning a new language, okay, which is the language of movement. And so the earlier we can get them to learn that and express that and learn how to express power and use their muscles, use their body, 
it's only going to snowball that potential as they come into middle school and do more athletic endeavors and come into high school and have to be more physical with their body. And so I think, I think, you know, the point that I would say is that getting an earlier start on the athletic development side is, is where I would really encourage parents and kids to do and, and not just only on court. And this is just, this doesn't just go for basketball. It's all sports. You know, it shouldn't just all be only sport. Of course, skill acquisition is so critical. You want to do it in a non-fatigue state as best as possible. So you get the best adaptations and, and, uh, and, and, and learning process going, but there's gotta be some body development and athletic development in the process because, you know, the, the, an athlete that's not, not like not on the field or their court is not helping anybody and they're not helping themselves. And I know parents, parents pay a lot of money for, to, you know, for kids to get service to, you know, in all these different departments. So we want them to be healthy. We want them to enjoy the sport. And I think having an athletic development focus along with their skill development has got to be hand in hand starting earlier than normal now. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. There's definitely <laughs> increased competition. And I think the earlier you start it, the more I'll say spread out, you can make your development process. Right. So instead of cramming so much activity and so much into a three or four year span in high school, if you start them when they're younger, you run a much lower risk of, you know, the overtraining, the burnout, all these other things that we keep seeing pop up time and time again. Um, so I think that's a great antidote uh, to that problem that we're seeing now. Uh, Blair, for people who want to find out more about you or Healthy Baller or anything like that, where can they find you at? Be at, uh, at, at www.healthyballer.com, super simple. Um, they can Google search my name or just Google search Healthy Baller. That's an easy way. And then once you do that, you'll see my you'll see my Instagram handle, which is Healthy Baller underscore OG. Um, I've really I've really made it a point to to try to get regular content up there. Um, you know, not trying to do anything dramatic or or super special, but share what's on my mind and share what I think is helpful and important for kids. On my Instagram, I'm really trying to speak more to the kid and the parent. Uh, maybe some coaches, but I'm not really like I'm not really trying to make it overly uh, scientific. I want kids to see what we're doing and understand why they're why we're doing it. Um, so I've got some fun stuff there, um, and of course our healthy baller uh, IG is just is just healthy underscore baller. Uh, but all easy to all easy to find. Um, feel free to follow us and feel free to reach out to me with any questions. Um, I try to be very interactive and and want to help people. It's it's part of what I feel like I'm here to do. I'm here to serve and help people get better and um, and help share my experience so I can help other people have a great journey and experience like I have. I've been very lucky um, in my strength and conditioning journey over the years and have a lot of experience in different sports and different levels of professional and high school and, and even college for that matter. So I'm happy to help if anybody needs it. So. Yeah, awesome. That's great, Blair. And I'll link to all of that stuff below too. So if you didn't quite uh, catch it, you can just click below and find out more about Healthy Baller and find Blair on social media. Blair, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. This was great. I appreciate it. Man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.